Blockchains are distributed ledger technology underlying Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. More broadly, a blockchain is a mechanism for updating truth states in distributed network computing, producing consensus trust, and serving as a new form of general computational substrate. Lewis Tuff is the VP of Engineering at Blockchain.com and joins the show to discuss the engineering behind the applications that involve buying and selling cryptocurrencies. Lewis, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. You work at blockchain.com and you have some background in other financial industry applications. Now, I've seen some of the mechanics behind a traditional order book of buying and selling equities, securities. How does the engineering behind an order book for buying and selling cryptocurrencies compared to that of traditional equities? Great question. I think in a lot of cases, we've actually modeled the implementation on, on Wall Street to ensure that one, we're able to build out a system that competes with, or at least matches Wall Street implementation. And two, can reach the kind of scale throughput latencies that have been achieved over kind of many decades of iterative work. And so in terms of how you model cryptocurrencies, we've basically looked at it and treated it like any other asset. And so on the back end in our matching engine, we're able to model kind of an arbitrary contract with any kind of defined parameters. And that could be a specific token asset, that could be some derivative, something we support right now, but, but potentially in the future. And the matching engine really has been focused and built around being extremely fast execution, extremely high throughput and scale, and product agnostic for the most part. And so all the complexity and lifecycle and state on the product specifics, in this case, kind of tokens, assets, derivatives, or any other permutation, is all built outside of that. And so we really kind of take a first principled approach and keep each component of the system as tightly constrained as possible. And that really allows you to scale and grow and continue to evolve the platform effectively. Can you walk me through the life cycle of a trade being executed? Yeah, of course. So we have a few different entry points into our kind of active trading venue or, or blockchain.com exchange. First one is interactive trading going through the UI. And so that's backed by a combination of both WebSocket and REST APIs. You can go through our public gateways. So these are our REST or WebSocket APIs directly, building trading bots or some automated or systematic trading effort. And the final way is actually going through co-location. So we offer co-location for clients that wish to invest in that. And we have a binary gateway or a DMA gateway that gives you direct access into the matching engine. And that's using a schema known as FIX, which is kind of the industry standard in the space and allows for both traditional and new clients to connect through a common interface. And so in terms of the lifecycle, what happens is that a client connecting through one of these gateways will construct a new order and if you're doing that for the API, you're obviously constructing that. We have an open socket connection for the WebSocket. So you send the command down the WebSocket channel, which is a new order single. 
which is parameterized with the market you wish to trade. So, so the pair of assets you wish to trade, how much you wish to buy or sell, so the direction and the amount. And that then goes through the gateway, which does initial kind of status check and validation that the command is as expected, matches the schema, parameters aren't out of range, etc. It then hits a risk engine, and the risk engine component is responsible for all the accounting. So making sure that you have sufficient balances in the token you're wishing to trade. So if we take, say, the Bitcoin USD market, if you're trying to buy Bitcoin and sell dollars, we need to make sure you actually have the sufficient dollars available on your account to be able to then buy the Bitcoin that you've specified. So the risk engine does those science checks and the kind of the accounting and does some final validation on the message schema and structure. And it can do an immediate reject then if balances are insufficient or there's some other issue with the parameters of the event. If everything passes through, it will then be sent into the matching engine. And then at that point, depending on the order type, if it's a market order, it will just sweep the current order book. So it'll look at each of the price levels and the amounts and try to match off immediately the amount you wish to buy. And if it's a resting order, i.e. you set a limit price, it will then sit in the book until that order is crossed, i.e. an opposing order comes in. So in this case, a sell for Bitcoin and buy of dollars, that will then get matched off within the match engine itself. And then the match engine will then send out an execution report, which is an event to confirm either the order has been placed or the trade has been executed. And that gets passed back through the stack. So back to the risk engine to amend the in-memory accounting and balances of the user, and then back to the gateway to publish this to the client, either the interface or a programmatic client. Does that make sense? Absolutely. The life cycle of that trade, what parts of it have to be serialized or atomized? Are there places where race conditions can create problematic circumstances? Oh, 100%. And so if we're talking about, say, the, the public gateways or cloud infrastructure, so we have the REST and WebSocket gateways and the front end sitting in front of those, they are stateless for the most part. There's some caching, but for the most part, they're stateless services. And so that means we can horizontally scale them based on demand and client connections. As I mentioned, for every client that connects for a public gateway, they're going to have an open socket connection. And so we need to make sure that we are load balancing those over an appropriate number of instances of that service. And so the service itself is stateless. We use kind of some shared distributed cache for kind of live order updates and events, but nothing critical to accounting or balances. And then the components behind the gateway, so the risk engine and the matching engine, are single threaded and execute things like all of the commands and process all the events sequentially. And so everything gets stamped with an identifier, the sequence number, and is processed in the order that is re received. And so that's super important to ensure the synchronization of the overall platform and system. And as you say, to make sure we don't hit any kind of contention or threading issues that you would see in say a multi-threaded environment. What do you use for distributed caching infrastructure? So on the public gateways, we are using Redish, which is a key value store 
for storing mainly informational data that can be used in the front end or passed back to clients connecting because the public networks are non-deterministic and not always the most reliable and it's outside of our control, right? And so we want to make sure that if a client temporarily disconnects for a few milliseconds or in a few seconds, that when they reconnect, they've not lost all of their state because maybe they didn't get a chance to consume all those events, right? And same on the front end. We offer mobile clients and browser-based clients for the exchange. So you can imagine if you're in a car or moving around in the city, you're moving between masts, your connection is constantly going to be moving with it, right? And traversing that network in a slightly different way as, as the packets are being passed to our infrastructure. And so for us, yeah, we use Redis as that kind of caching layer for this informational metadata that helps with understanding where you are in terms of your open orders, any activity that happened during a disconnect, and then a few other kind of key pieces. I'd like to talk about wallets. Operating your own wallet is not a fun experience, but of course it maximizes security. There's this trade-off between security and ease of use for wallet design, and this is particularly acute for the exchanges who have a lot of non-technical users. What's the ideal wallet design for this mix of technical and non-technical users? That is a large question. And so I think how I'll answer this in a few parts. One is that we do have a very diverse and broad user base. And there are extremely early adopters that have been with us on this journey over the last 10 years and really understand the nuances and mechanics of what's going on and are what you deem a kind of a power user. In that case, they want maximum transparency, maximum control and visibility into the transactions that are being instructed, how they're being broadcast on chain and access to all the, of the different applications that are being built on top of these protocols. And then, as you mentioned, we have exchange users that maybe are coming to the crypto industry and domain for the first time. And really what they want to do is just speculate and buy and sell. And so for those users, they're really looking for an interface that is familiar and very much reflects what they're used to in terms of financial services that they use on a day-to-day basis. And that really means like looking at brokerage accounts, traditional brokerage accounts. It means looking at challenger banks or your banking services apps or other kind of light investment platforms. And so when we think about a wallet, that's kind of the broad spectrum, right? It's the self-sovereign individuals that want to manage and own their keys and never deposit or send their funds to us or any third party. And then you have the group of individuals on the other side who really just want to access some part of the ecosystem or get some exposure in a very light touch and familiar way. And that's a fully custodial offering that we offer on the other side. And so what you have to do there is be very intentional about the user, the persona of that, that user, what their behavior is and their expectations are, and what is the outcome they're trying to achieve. And so instead of trying to kind of conflate all these different user profiles into one wallet context and one app experience, what we're actually doing is delineating between, okay, what is your intention and what is the outcome you want to achieve here? Do you just want to buy the underlying asset, and then sell it at some point later. And you do not want to 
to vote on a DAO or buy an NFT or access some DEX or some other kind of crypto native experience. Okay, in that case, we can take you down this tater flow where we recommend the custodial offering and everything that you touch and see and feel from first sign up will be very familiar because we'll simplify and abstract away the complexity. And the beauty of that is that then later you can introduce these new concepts piece by piece, right? Rather than overwhelming the user the first time they come to your product. And so that's our current strategy is like we've added a lot of products and features and now we're really thinking about clearly defining these intent driven flows to tailor the whole product experience end to end to a power user versus a completely new user to the space that wants to just understand what their friends have told them about recently and, and dive a little bit deeper. Is there a lot of off the shelf wallet infrastructure that you can use, or do you have to spend a lot of time rolling your own security systems for protecting wallets? So we're one of the largest non-custodial or DeFi wallets on the market. And so we have invested a decade or more of time and effort and energy to build out that infrastructure, right? And provide that abstraction on top of the underlying protocols, the technology, and the security concerns and constraints. And so all of our wallets are open source across the mobile clients and the browser. And we built all of that in a house to answer your question succinctly. So we've built out the non-custodial element, which is the path to self-custody your assets, as well as the custodial element and our custody system in-house from scratch. Coming back to the trading, I wonder about risk of holding assets, because if you consider yourself a store where people can go and buy crypto, those assets can obviously fluctuate in value. You know, the more you can match trades between people and just have arbitrage there, it's obviously more ideal, but you probably have to hold some crypto unless you buy crypto on the fly from other exchanges when an order comes in. Can you tell me about the mechanics of what crypto you hold and just how you think about the risk of you know, price fluctuations? Yeah, I think just one thing to clarify, first of all, before I answer the full question is like, we have two main consumer products for buying, selling, swapping, and holding. One of them is the brokerage product that sits within the wallet context and app. And one of them is the exchange, the active trading venue. And the brokerage product really is your one-click checkout experience. So these are for users where it's their first time entering a space. They don't necessarily have any kind of financial markets knowledge or experience. They want to just get exposure to that underlying asset. And in that case, we have familiar on-ramps. So with Card, Bank, Plaid, and, and other aggregators, you can buy with Fiat and hold a crypto asset. And if you do that with us, then yes, we will be holding and custodying those crypto assets on your behalf until which time you wish to sell them or withdraw them from your wallet. And in that case, that sits in our custody system, which has gone through kind of security audits and reviews. And it's kind of multi-tiered to ensure that only a very small percentage are ever available in our hot wallet. Everything else is in cold storage or offline. And so with that model, the user themselves are buying the exposure to 
particular asset. And if that goes up or goes down, that's on the user to decide when they wish to sell and how long they wish to hold. There's no kind of exposure or risk on the company. It's just on the market generally in terms of dynamics of, of how the asset performs. If you think about the exchange, in that case, we're not on the other side of any of these transactions. So this is a two-sided marketplace where we're bringing together buyers and sellers of assets, and they are placing these resting orders, limit orders into the book or placing market orders to immediately fill. And we're never stepping in as a counterparty in the middle. So the matching engine is fair. It's looking at press time priority of these orders coming in, which are all sequenced. And only if there is enough of the particular asset on the opposing side available, will it be matched off. Otherwise, the partial order remaining or the full order, if it wasn't matched off with any of the counter currency at that price, will just sit resting until which time there is an order that is suitable to be matched. And so in that case, the exchange is a custody system. We're custodying the assets. But again, there's no FX risk there to the company or to the individual, right? They're just holding the assets that they deposited on the exchange initially. So whether that's fiat or that's crypto, that's up to them. And so again, it comes down to market dynamics rather than inherent effects risk in the system on either side of the transaction. So in the brokerage, the company is fulfilling the other side of the transaction and you're buying and selling from blockchain.com. On the exchange, you're actually buying and selling from other counterparties in the market, other users of our exchange. And they may be institutional and they may be retail. Are there any other places where the company is subject to price fluctuations or risks of dramatic market downturns, things like that? Sure. We offer a very broad range of products on the institutional and on the consumer side. And we have a very successful lending business. And there you are both borrowing from clients as well as lending out to clients. And there we have a team of individuals that are managing the credit risk and managing the lending book. And so there it is very much going to be around focusing on the price of any assets at any one time, what collateral has been used to service that loan, and then what are the margin requirements on the specific loan. Can you tell me more about the engineering behind a lending business? Well, we have a rewards product in our wallet where users are able to deposit funds using the same platform. One of the things that we've built within Lotion.com's platform is to make sure that we're building out the core layers that are product agnostic and offer maximum leverage across the entire stack. And so what I mean by that is like for every product or feature that's being developed, we're not building out redundant components. And so we have a single custody system that has been secured, security audited and, and iterated on and is now the core place for all custody assets across all of our different product lines, whether that's on the institutional side or on the retail side. Same with our ledger, same with like authentication, authorization. We've built out these kind of platform layers and we have teams focused on maintaining those and securing them. And then on top of that, we're able to build out these different permutations of products, experiences that we can then offer consumers and institutions. So the rewards product takes advantage of using our custody system, using our ledger, using our payment rails on and off ramps. It ties all those components together to build out this new product experience. Or from a user's perspective, all they have to do is 
decide how much of their assets they want to deposit. And then we'll start generating return on those deposited assets, calculating that daily and paying that back weekly. And then behind the scenes, those assets are then available to our lending desk, which are using any kind of borrowed assets to generate returns. And we're passing that out directly on to our consumers. I think it's worth talking here about programming languages. We've talked about a variety of sensitive transactions involving lots of money. And so safety is a big concern here. You know, I can see a lot of candidate languages for these different systems. Obviously, Java, so widely known for trading infrastructure, Golang. What's your language of choice for some of these financial execution platforms? Yeah, great question. So we have a wide variety of skill sets and engineers within a team, but the two most common platforms and stacks are based around C++ and around the JVM, so Java and Kotlin. And we are anything that's on kind of the critical path of trading. So placing or processing orders, updating kind of the accounting in the risk engine, or doing the matching is all built in C or C++. And that really then gives us the most control over the execution flow, as well as the underlying hardware to make sure we're kind of optimizing our execution path for the underlying architecture. And so, yeah, as I mentioned before, we have co-location for the exchange offering. And so as part of our system is on-prem, it's not all in the cloud. And we've done that to be able to maximize throughput and minimize latencies. And so they're the kind of primary two languages that we source for and hire into those roles here. Aside from that, there's a number of other languages that are used in data science, they use Python and, and our SRE teams for automation, they use Golang, as you've mentioned. But I think in terms of, yeah, the financial service components and infrastructure, it's more and more being dominated by C++ and periphery components are built in a JVM, Kotlin, and Java. So can you help me understand the delineation between JVM platforms and C++? Because I can obviously imagine C++ for the low-level mechanics of trade execution. Like maybe if you have some really big pool of orders, of buy and sell orders, and you have to pair them, you have to do some matching, that's you know really latency-sensitive lots of kind of filtering and sorting operations that you would want to get really quick. And then on the other hand, the JVM side of things I could see just for calling into that lower level C++ infrastructure. And, you know, you can take advantage of the greater safety, higher level of abstraction for actually calling into those low level functions. But maybe you could tell me more about the interface between those two platforms. Yeah, Sure. I mean, you have described it pretty accurately. I think that for us, the delineation is around kind of public gateways that are stateless and need to scale fast and, and service both open source technologies and platforms. I mean, we mentioned Redis. We use Kafka for event-driven architecture and, and message passing. And so like these libraries and integrations are common practice and readily available and, and tried and tested in production environments. And if you go to kind of C or C++, there's kind of less of these available. So you either have to build them yourself or find some niche library that, that may not be battle tested. And so 
generally for a service where we need to spin up public-facing APIs, whether that's WebSocket or, or REST, or maybe even internal services for, for gRPC, which we have in some cases, there it's much easier to do that and, and quicker to do that in these higher-level abstracted languages, where this is kind of common practice and, and happens all the time, right? And then in terms of the interface between them, as I mentioned, we are using Kafka to basically message pass between the JVM world and then consume it into the C++ world. And that's really kind of the interface that primary interface we're using between the two. Gotcha. How else are you utilizing Kafka? We mainly use it as an event log for message passing and then offloading state to periphery components for reporting, analytics, for persistent state onto disk. So anything that's kind of in memory and decisions remaining fast, we then need to synchronize and persist at the disk so we have transactional log. So it's really being used for, for those primary cases. Message passing between services and acting as a bridge there and then offloading events that, that need to be persisted for archiving an event log. Are you utilizing any of the Kafka native features like Kafka Streams or KSQL to build layers of transactions on top of Kafka? No, we kind of veered away from, from doing that, especially in the trading system. We're very much using it in a deterministic, high-throughput way so that we want to maximize our ability to write and read back events in the same order as quickly as possible. And we haven't yet kind of gone down, at least in the trading system, kind of partitioning a route and, and adding any transactional logic outside of the application itself. There are definitely other applications in our broader platform where we're using partitioning and sequencing doesn't matter as much. And so we do then parallelize transactional activity and, and the consumption. And we're able to kind of have single producer and multiple consumers. And in that case, yeah, you've got a different architectural model. But in trading system, it's very much sequential, single-threaded, and, and everything is processed in sequence. Is there any significant downside to using Kafka for message passing in this kind of low latency infrastructure? Does Kafka serve effectively? Like I've, you know, I've, I've seen obviously a variety of message buses, but I guess Kafka is so resilient and fast at this point, it's probably up to snuff for this kind of application. Well, no, it's, it's a great topic. It's something that we discussed a lot. And when we first launched the exchange, like three years ago now, Kafka was kind of the go-to to get something into the market quickly. And, and as I say, using something that's battle-tested, robust, resilient, and, and has a set of best practices around how you scale it. For us, what we've done over time is actually remove Kafka from any of the critical paths of trading decisions and really just using it to, let's say, offload events to for third-party processing, for downstream processing, and not using it to execute any order or trade decisions. And so that's really the pathway we're going down now. And so it's definitely great in a system where you're not sensitive to latency or sequencing, I think more crucially, but in a system where you care about sequencing, latency, and throughput, yeah, Kafka is definitely not the appropriate choice. I'd like to know more about some of the higher level 
building blocks that you use to build this platform. So we've got a pretty good picture of it at this point. The lowest level of trade execution, you have C++, you have Java serving as kind of a middleware layer, Kafka for message passing between different services, Redis for in-memory caching. There's a few other you know, points we haven't really talked about. Transactional database, as well as deployment medium for you know, how you're deploying your services. So yeah, maybe you could talk through some of those other infrastructure decisions. Yeah, sure. So on the database front, we've predominantly rolled out a Postgres across any kind of relational database and or kind of object database. Postgres is extremely versatile, fast, and, and if tuned appropriately for your workload, serves a, a lot of different interesting use cases. And so we're using Postgres for a lot of our persistent state. And yeah, where, again, throughput and latency is needed, we've done various optimizations to make sure that the database is not on the critical path of those decisions. But in a web-based application, Postgres serves a great purpose. We do have some MySQL, but that's more for some legacy components. And as I say, we've kind of converged on Postgres moving forwards. And, and we run that in a cloud environment and leverage kind of cloud services to remove a lot of the operational burden around managing 50, 100 different databases across many, many services. And then in terms of like our database, our systems, we use a few different very bespoke implementations for kind of fast in-memory execution and computation, which is then memory mapped to files and offloaded. But yeah, in terms of like traditional database, Postgres, MySQL are the, are the primary two. And then in terms of our other items around deployment, as I kind of alluded to, we, we do operate most of our stack in the cloud. And so we've built out a containerized architecture and deployment system where every service, no matter what the underlying platform or language, wherever it's built in Java, Kotlin, Python, Golang, C++, is, is being wrapped in a Docker container. And so we define the Docker images and build all those in house ourselves and, and, and sign them. And they become the, the, the base images for the Docker files. And then we have any kind of bespoke logic or, or customization for a particular microservice. And then we have some internal tooling to bootstrap the creation and initiation of these services in our development or staging or production environments. And we use kind of Nomad under the hood from HashiCorp to actually do the orchestration itself. So we've just basically wrapped the Nomad APIs, enriched it with some internal tooling for metrics, alerting, monitoring, so that every engineer gets a minimum set of visibility and observability into their component, as long as they follow this well-defined schema and manifest for their particular component. And then, yeah, if you don't have any specific constraints on your service, like you just want to deploy a new microservice that is going to be integrated with some other system internally, then you can do that very simply and easily. If you want to build a microservice that exposes some public routes, there's some additional configuration to expose those for security reasons. But again, it's kind of a simple process, but all of it stems back to a common CI/CD process. Everything is defined in Docker files, containerized, and we have 
a centralized system for managing access controls, team permissions, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned Nomad. Why would you choose Nomad for your orchestration? Well, it's, it's a powerful orchestration tool that actually allows you to span both on-premise and multiple cloud environments. And so we're using this to actually manage the lifecycle of our binaries or so the raw binaries that we want to deploy to on-prem boxes or the containers that we want to instantiate within our cloud-based environment. And so we've actually invested a lot in working with the system to take full advantage. And we're doing everything from optimizing it for our training system, so implementing kind of core pinning and CPU isolation and making sure we're aligning components that require themselves to be new malware uh, on the VMs appropriately, to also then just running, as I say, a vanilla container that is just a JVM-based service that exposes a few endpoints that needs to be consumed by a public or a private component. And so for us, it's served well. We, we've been using it for a long time and, and we've both contributed back to the open source project and, and spoke with the team on some of our kind of more interesting workloads, which do kind of come down to this optimizing for low latency and high throughput in, in our trading infrastructure and crossing the boundary between both a cloud-based deployment and on-premise. Do you miss anything by not getting exposed to the pace of change and the ecosystem of the Kubernetes community? I think that Kubernetes is a powerful tool and it does have a significant community behind it. And I've actually been involved in the Kubernetes community for a long time and was uh, playing around with it during the early beta days and on the channel when there's only a few thousand people on the Slack channel. It was great to be there seeing the evolution of, of the product and how engaged the engineering community were in making this a success and contributing back and improving the whole experience. I do think that Kubernetes is not a one-size-fits-all. And so you have to think carefully about what you're giving up by leveraging Kubernetes, which provides a lot of abstractions and does take care of a lot of the wiring of how you deploy and connect services, how you manage firewall rules, how you manage kind of app configuration. It's very specific in defining that state, the schema and the lifecycle, which is great if you have simple services and need to do something quickly. I think if you want to do things at our scale, where we have kind of 600 plus containers running, we have five and a half, six thousand cores running. I mean, it's a significant footprint. And I think they're kind of putting all of the control of the management of your platform stack into software that you didn't write or don't understand fully the mechanics of, I think is problematic. So unless, yeah, I had a team that was deeply familiar with the internals of Kubernetes, I wouldn't want to just kind of switch this overnight for the whole platform. I think having specific projects that could benefit from it, for example, more elastic dynamic projects where you're not sure on the amount of compute you may need, for example, data science is a good example of this. Like it would make a lot of sense to have a dedicated Kubernetes cluster using GKE and GCP. So you don't have to manage 
all of the underlying infrastructure to like the key value store and, and, and the state, you kind of pay a small premium and I source that. And then they can be very elastic on, okay, we want to run a bunch of research jobs that are going to do a ton of batch processing, but they're going to be done in four hours and they want to scale it back down. I think then you kind of get the real benefits of having this kind of very dynamic infrastructure where you really just want to use compute on demand. You don't really care too much about how that is done as long as you get your output and goal. Whereas with a lot of our workloads across the stack, whether it's on-chain activity, whether it's building these screening systems that, that are optimized for speed and throughput, there you really do care about how your workload is executed and in which environment it is being executed. And there you really need to control the, the stack end-to-end, both from the network level as well as the underlying architecture of the hardware. Which again is why we went on-prem for our trading system, our exchange, and didn't go into the cloud because there you have control over every component of the system should you need it. That's an interesting infrastructure decision made essentially because of scale. We didn't talk that much about the transactional database layer. And that was another thing I want to talk to you about. As far as the transactional layer, okay, so Postgres, you know... There's obviously been some newer databases, you know, that have come out since Postgres that have challenged it as the OLTP database of choice, and notably CockroachDB or Spanner. And then I guess you could say PlanetScale, although PlanetScale is, I believe, mostly scalable Postgres. But can you tell me more about your database choice and maybe the constraints on your database and yeah, just take me inside the database world of blockchain.com. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is an evolving space and topic for sure. I think there are a number of abstractions on top of Postgres that have been built for specific use cases, like Time Series DB is another one that we're looking to use and, and some of the team are, are very familiar with, which out of the box gives you a Time Series database built on top of the kind of solid foundations of Postgres and all of the integrations, tooling, and plugins you get with that. And so that that's pretty powerful. And so we are looking at kind of different flavors of Postgres and how we can kind of take advantage of them. I think that in terms of the decision-making, with all of our infrastructure and, and at our scale, there's a few kind of, kind of parameters that go into the heuristic for how we make these decisions. Like security is number one. Like, are we managing or interacting with payloads or data or attributes that are highly sensitive in some manner, shape or form. Second one is like, do we believe that the underlying service or system or, or software that we choose will be able to meet our demands and scale, both in terms of throughput uh, as well as persistent data on disk and then the challenges of managing double digit terabytes of data at scale, how do you do that effectively? I.e. kind of partition management and offloading those partitions and how you can do that effectively. And is there a kind of huge operational load on, on kind of the S3 team to, to manage that in-house or are there services or, or tooling that are available to you with your choice? And the third thing is consistency. Do you need eventual consistency, immediate consistency, like strong consistency? What is the constraints on the system or on the data that you're serving up? And so actually we, we did do an experiment and, and we did roll out a production set of services for our Ethereum ingestion. So ingesting the Ethereum chain and then presenting that back up 
a set of APIs both publicly and internally to support our products in the wallet and elsewhere using Spanner so that we had immediate consistency on a global scale. And I think that we tried Spanner. We've also rolled out with our Bitcoin ingestion, RocksDB, and using more of this in-memory, memory-mapped database that we then synchronize ourselves to the application layer. So there's like a number of ways of doing this. And then you have to think about consensus and, and how you reach that. And, and do you kind of build that yourself? And so we have gone through a number of these topics. And, and I think that in the most general state and sense, Postgres is a good solution to a lot of our problems where you just want to capture an event and persist it on disk and access that easily through both programmatic and third-party products, i.e. you want to service data off the product managers so they can interrogate the behavior and performance of their feature or product. And so in that case, Postgres is a good fit, right? It solves all of those problems. We then have built libraries in house and, and, and ways to kind of uh, interact with database layer in a light way without having to kind of reinvent the wheel for every microservice that needs access to a persistent store. And so that abstraction is helpful because you get leverage internally as more and more engineers come on board. And we use kind of, yeah, lightweight frameworks like Juke, which is a Java query language, like a fluent interface on top of SQL that gives you kind of type safety around your queries. And so using kind of these lightweight frameworks, building out the internal libraries means your engineers can move forward faster. And so really like coming back to the original decision-making, it's like, does it require heightened levels of security? Will it match and meet our scale? And does it meet any kind of consistency requirements? We go through that and then understand, okay, do we have a product or service that already fits that mold? Or is there something unique about the problem we're solving that requires us to rethink our approach? And for us, yeah, we are a fast growing team, but we're still pretty lean across a lot of different key areas. And we're focused on kind of hiring in highly performant engineers and not just hiring in kind of hundreds or thousands of additional engineers. And so I think kind of having small focused cross-functional engineering teams that are highly performant really drive uh, maximum value. And that means being commercial, being product focused and really thinking about, okay, yeah, there is this new shiny tool, but is it really providing any additional value and, and does it solve a new problem that we couldn't solve before? And I think in most cases, the answer is usually no. So when you look at uh, decentralized trading infrastructure, most notably the ones built on the Ethereum blockchain, are there ways that you can utilize decentralized trading infrastructure to underpin your own trading infrastructure? Or does it make sense to just stick to your current platform? Yeah, so we're actually looking to build out both crypto native experiences. And so we're launching an NFT marketplace. We're looking at supporting uh, new protocols and, and kind of decentralized apps on top of those protocols and the ecosystem around them. We have like roles out right now to, to hire in Solana engineers, for example, to help kind of contribute and, and build out the ecosystem there. And in terms of DEXs specifically, yeah, I think there's a few different product choices you made. It's like, do we want to build an aggregator where we source liquidity from multiple places and then present that as a unified product experience to the user? 
so they can maximize the ways that they can access liquidity, but they don't have to jump through all these hoops to do that manually. And so I really see this as a complementary product to a centralized exchange and order book. And at some point, maybe we want to bridge the two, but, but right now, yeah, we see them as complementary and we want to build out and provide a gateway into these crypto native experiences for those that are interested in diving deeper, as well as the custodial experiences, which are familiar products and features for people day to day. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Amazing. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. I appreciate your time.